Come say. We must have some first service folks here because the first service, they talk and talk and talk before we get going. And you guys are usually quiet, done, let's get in the word. So, uh, okay, you first service people, you're corrupting second service. No. <laughs> God bless you guys. Glad you're here this morning. If you have your Bibles, if you would turn to two places this morning. First, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And then... Uh, turn to Philippians chapter 4. We'll continue picking up where we left off in the book of Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. If you need a Bible, Richard is up. He has Bibles in his hand. If you raise your hand, he'll get one right to your seat so you can follow along with us. Anybody else need a Bible, just raise your hand up high. We'll give uh, Richard exercise. He can go back and forth. Not someone over here, Richard. No, I'm just kidding. That's horrible, huh? Second <laughs> Corinthians chapter 10 and Philippians chapter 4. The title of my study this morning is Thinking Right Thoughts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning, this uh, opportunity that you've given to us to hear from you, Lord, through the teaching of your word, to sense your presence through the worship, Lord, and we... Just thank you, Lord, for just the blessing of being able to gather together this morning, Lord. We praise you for this time. We pray, Father, if there's anyone that has joined us that is yet to know you as their Lord and as their Savior, we pray you touch their heart especially today. Thank you for this time, Lord. Thank you for this country that we live in, Lord. Uh, uh, we pray that you'd, you'd bless our celebration of our country tomorrow, Lord, but uh, more importantly, we ask, Lord, that you bless our time together. Lord, give us attentive ears to what your Spirit has to say to your church this morning. We commit our time to you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The story I found about a young woman who was teaching a Sunday school class for kindergartners, and they were talking about dreams and different dreams they have. And the, and the teacher said, well, I used to have a lot of bad dreams when I was a child. And in fact, sometimes I still have bad dreams. For example, just last night... I had a bad dream that I blew up Pastor Henry's house. Well, one little girl raised her hand and it stayed up for a while until the teacher finally called on her and the little girl put her hand down and very clearly said, my mama told me if you don't have bad thoughts, you won't have bad dreams. What's she thinking about Pastor Henry? There's a well-known saying that goes like this, sow a thought, reap an action, sow an action, reap a habit, Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. And it's true. Whatever we do, it starts with a thought. And if you think about it long enough, it moves into an action. Repeat that action enough times and it becomes habit forming. And that habit then becomes a part of who you are, your destiny. Now, I'm sure we never thought, well, that, that little thought, is how could that become my destiny? But it's true. Look at the things that we have today. Computer technology started with just a thought. Motorized transportation started with a thought. Communism started with a thought. The USA started with a thought. It's been said, rule your thoughts or they will rule you. Now, those thoughts could be good thoughts, and that, that's okay. Maybe you'll say, hey, from now on, I'm going to start. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to do it every single morning. Now, it's become a habit. And you get up in the morning without spending... Uh, some time in God's Word, but, but you're going, man, I, I've got to. Why? Because it's it shaped your destiny. It's now become a part of who you are. 
But it all began with a thought. See, that's where the battle begins. See, the good or bad thoughts. It's a battle in our minds. And if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to see three things. Number one, ungodly thoughts lead to bad actions. Number two, godly thoughts lead to good actions. And then we're going to close with number three, godly thoughts lead to godly people. But number one, godly thoughts lead to bad actions. Look now at 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. Paul is writing and he says here, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And catch this, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to push all, punish all disobedience with your, when your obedience is fulfilled. So Paul is telling us that disobedience starts with a thought, and if it's not dealt with, it leads to bad actions. In fact, that word in verse 4 for stronghold, it's a word that's translated citadel or clenched fist. It's where the, the bad thoughts lead to, to bad actions. The thought that says, well, I don't like the way that person looked at me. I don't like what that person said to me. and I'm going to do something about it. And you've got this clenched fist. You're going to act. You're going to respond. That's like the story I read about an elderly lady driving a big, new, expensive car, and, and she was preparing to pull into a parking space. And as she waited and waited till the previous car finally pulled out, uh, suddenly a young man in a small sports car zoomed in ahead of her. And, and the woman angrily asked why he had done this when, when uh, she could tell that, uh, he could tell that she was trying to park there. And his response was simply, because I'm young and I'm quick. And the young man entered the store. Well, when he came out a few minutes later, uh, he found the elderly lady using her big car as a battering ram, backing up, ramming it again, backing up and ramming his old sports car. He very angrily asked her why she was wrecking uh, his car. Uh, Her response, because I'm old and I'm rich. Now, what started with a thought, that's mine. That's my parking space. I deserve it. I waited for it. Moved into actions, using your car as a battering ram. But you see, when you come to Christ, it's no longer your parking space. It's no longer your rights. It's no longer what you think you deserve. We deserve death. It's all about Jesus Christ. And so when we bring every thought into the captivity of Jesus Christ, we're saying that He is my perfect provider. He knows what I need. Uh, you go ahead, you take that space, I'll find another. But it begins with a thought. And if it's a stronghold, if it's a clenched fist that says, I will fight you for this, it's mine, then that bad thought's going to lead to bad actions. And Paul says, please bring those thoughts into the captivity of Jesus Christ. Now, not only can a desire for possessions like a parking spot bring about a path of disobedience, but also desire for position. It's that entitlement mentality that says, I deserve this, I want this, I've waited for this, and I deserve it. Be it a a promotion at work, you know, be it a a new car, a new house, you know, whatever. I deserve this, a new husband. And we think, God, I have the right to be happy, don't I? And we argue with God, you don't want to do that. Paul says, cast down that argument against every high thing that exalts itself against God. Don't you know that disobedience begins with a thought? Covetousness, 
greed, self-centeredness, are all sins that start with a thought. In fact, all sin starts with a thought. So what do we do? Change the way we think. That leads us to point number two. Godly thoughts lead to good actions. We'll be camped out on this for a minute. So if you're so busy thinking godly thoughts, that's going to lead you to godly actions. In other words, you don't have time for those ungodly thoughts to come in because your life is full of godly thoughts. Now you may be thinking, well, I don't even know where to begin. Well, Paul does. Now look at Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. As Paul lays out for us eight different thoughts that we can focus on that will lead us to godly actions. Let's start looking at, at verse 8. Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things have good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. In other words, think hard about these things. And you want to keep on thinking about these things that are true, that are, are, are just, that are noble, that are good report. Paul begins, though, with whatever things are true. Truth. Now remember, this chapter started out with Paul saying in verse 2, I implore Judea and I implore Sintiche to be the same mind in the Lord. So these two ladies, they were not getting along. Maybe there's some gossip, some lies being spread about this going on, some slander. Paul says, listen, only think about those things that are true. Why? Well, because when you think on only true thoughts, it's going to destroy worry and anxiety. And we looked at this last week, remember? Only 8% of the things that we worry about actually are legitimate worries. 92% of those things that, that it's not going to happen. It's false thinking. It's just not true. The plane will land. The, the, the car will make it to the store. Your kids are going to go swimming after they eat. You won't go to jail if you pull that little tag off of the sofa pillow, you know, that says do not remove. Truth is a powerful thing. Why? Why is it so powerful? Because the Lord knows that we have an adversary, the devil, who is the father of all lies. And if he can get us to believe the lie, then he can cause us to worry and to be anxious and to destroy us. That Jesus speaking to the religious leaders of the day in John 8, 44 said this. He said, "You you are of the father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. John eight forty four. And I thought about that. Tomorrow we celebrate the 4th of July. 240 years ago, our forefathers signed that Declaration of Independence. And the purpose of the Declaration was to separate us officially from the repression and authority of England. Now, the devil would like all of us to think that we as a nation did not have really a Judeo-Christian beginning. And I think he's done a pretty good job of that with that lie. Many today have denied the faith, had any, denied faith had anything to do with our founding of our great nation. In fact, they try to remove God from the history of our nation. I shared this last year this time, but it's worth repeating. The truth, the truth is this Declaration of Independence, a document that has only 1,321 words and takes about eight minutes to read, mentions God four times, twice at the beginning and twice at the end. As that declaration was being signed, 
Samuel Adams said, We have this day restored the sovereign to whom all men ought to be obedient. He reigns in heaven, and from the rising to the setting of the sun, let his kingdom come. John Adams, second president of the United States, said, The general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. Adams went on to say that in observing the 4th of July, it ought to be commemorated as a day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. April 18, 1775, a British soldier ordered him, John Adams, along with John Hancock and others, to disperse in the name of George, the sovereign king of England. Adams' response was, we recognize no sovereign but God and no king but Jesus. I love that. We are a great nation because of the blessings of God. In fact, James Madison, the architect of the federal constitution and fourth president of the United States, said this, quote, We have staked the whole future of American civilization not upon the power of government, far from it. We have staked the future upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves, to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. 1845, President Andrew Jackson asserted, The Bible is the rock upon which our republic rests. One more, and this is certainly very interesting. In 1891, the U.S. Supreme Court had a ruling between the Church of the Holy Trinity versus the United States. The outcome was that these United States are a Christian nation. To quote, Our laws and our institutions must necessarily be based upon and embody the teachings of the Redeemer of mankind. It is impossible that it should be otherwise. And in this sense and to this extent, our civilization and our institutions are emphatically Christian. This is a religious people. This is historically true. From the discovery of this continent to the present hour, there's a single voice making this affirmation. We find everywhere a clear definition of the same truth. This is a Christian nation. End quote. The trouble with America today is that we stop listening to our forefathers, listening to what they told us God did in their lives long ago. And instead, we've listened to the lies of the devil. And it amazes me how quickly our allegiance to Jesus Christ and biblical values have changed in our nation. And just 240 years, we've managed to rewrite history, and we've watched our great nation, founded on the truth of God's word and the principles of Christianity, be swept away. Woodrow Wilson warned, really, when he said, a nation which does not remember what it was yesterday does not know what it is today or what it is trying to do. And I think the same could be said to to the church in America today. A church that does not remember what it was yesterday does not know what it is today or what it's trying to do. That has never been more evident than it is today. I think it's only taken about a hundred years or so that, that many of the mainline Christian denominations have slipped away from their foundation on the Word of God. And they've adopted secular doctrines and, and politically correct philosophies. So they've really locked out the truth of God's Word and to the adherence of God's Word. And sadly, many of these mainline denominations in America are nothing more than social clubs with franchises nationwide. The pastors preach sermonettes for Christianettes about all the environments and the social injustices and acceptance and support of all lifestyles. Listen, that's not the mission of the church, of those who follow Christ. We are called to preach the truth, the gospel, to call sinners to repentance, to let the world know that Jesus Christ gave his life upon that cross, was crucified, buried three days, rose again from the grave. And those that turn from their sin and put their faith and trust in Him, can have salvation, can be saved from eternity in hell. 
See, God is a God of truth. He loves the truth. And the truth is that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus put it this way in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus called the Word of God the truth. Remember when Jesus prayed in the garden there in Gethsemane, He prayed, sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. So in a world that's filled with these lies and, and these, these advertisements, these commercials on TV, oh, you, you need this and you can be happy. Oh, you need this and your life will be satisfied. You know, or this. Man, it's great to have the Word of God, to, to, to dig into God's Word and to know we have the truth. Paul tells us to meditate, to think on that which is true and right. I think here's a suggestion for all of us. You know, in the morning when we get up, don't turn the TV on. But I've got to see the weather. I've got to know what's going to rain. I've got to see the news. Listen, before you look at the bad news, look at the good news. Meditate on the truth of God's Word so that it will equip you when you get the bad news. It puts everything into perspective. Begin your day and your day in the truth, in the Word of God. You know, in the evening, man, you don't have to read 20 chapters of the Old Testament, you know, before you go to bed. A psalm, a proverb, you know, man, something to put in your mind and your thoughts before you go to sleep. Well, this brings us back to Philippians 4, 8, and the second word that Paul tells us to think about, to meditate on. He says, whatever things are noble. So we're to have true thoughts, then we're also to have noble thoughts. That word noble there means worthy of honor and respect. Worthy of honor and respect. Now, this goes for the way we need to treat each other. All people, not just fellow believers. You know, uh, we've got non-believers that, that come into the fellowship on Sunday morning. We need to treat them with honor and respect. It doesn't matter what background they came from, you know, what lifestyle they're, they're currently caught up in. God is going to do the work in their lives. And the more they hear and apply God's word, the truth of God's word, you know, God will do that work. Our responsibility is to treat them with honor and respect. Well, noble thoughts can also apply to us and honoring and respecting the Word of God. So that when a sermon is preached or God's Word is being taught, we need to listen to it with respect because it is the Word of God. And the Word of God should always be respected. Now people say, well, everybody should own a Bible. I have two of them. I can press flowers in them and, and they get dried and they look really good on my coffee table and, and you can even write your family's genealogy in them. I mean, this is great. No, it's worthy of respect. Because of what it does for you. Man, you, you never have to go anywhere else for the needs of your soul than to the Word of God because of the effect that it will have on your life. Now, it's a process. When you begin to honor what God has said in His Word, then, then you look at the next word in verse 8. It says, then we're able to enjoy and have just thoughts. Just thoughts. Again, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just or just means whatever things are right or conforming to God's standard. In other words, the more that you meditate on God's Word, allowing it to penetrate our thought life, the more of, of God will, will give us His standard of righteousness and holiness, of what pleases Him and what displeases Him. It puts us on the righteous path, the just path. David put it this way in Psalm 119, verse 9, How can a young man cleanse his ways? And then he answers, it by saying, by taking heed according to your word. David said in Psalm 119, 105, your word is the lamp unto my feet and the light unto my path. I've been amazed, and I shouldn't be, but I've been amazed over the years when I really need to make an important decision, how I can look to the principles of God's word and, and always find guidance. 
I can always find direction in making that decision. Now, I know you could go to a counselor and you can pay 80 bucks for a half hour, but, but God's word is free. And, and we have free Bibles for you. So if you don't have a Bible, you can have one. Take two if you want them. David said, your testimonies are also my delight and my counselors, he says. God's word is our counselor. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, said this about God's word. He said, this book will keep you from sin, but sin will keep you from this book. So meditate on it. Something that's worth considering going over and over. It just gives me the just path, the right path. And you know, I hear people say, well, I don't read the Bible because, you know, there's just so many contradictions in it. You know, you know I love it when they say that to me because I hand them my Bible. Okay, show me one. Just show me one, you know, and I'll try and hand that to them. And, you know, and they look at the Bible. Oh, no, keep that thing away from me. You know, I don't, I don't want that, you know. Why? Because what they really mean is not that there are contradictions in the Bible, but rather there are contradictions with what the Bible says and how I want to live my life. That's what they really mean, you know. Mark Twain said this. He said, it's not the things I don't understand in the Bible that bothers me. It's the things I do understand. Now, this leads us to, to the next thought we're to be thinking. Paul says, whatever things are pure. Whatever things are pure. It's a big one. I mean, don't you get tired from time to time as you look around in this world, you get tired of the filth. Tired of the filth that's there. Here Paul uses the word for pure. It means clean or holy. So he's saying, think about Clean and holy things. In other words, what is your thought life like? Now, this is important because it has everything to do with how we treat others. Paul says we're to have pure thoughts. Now, if you're taking notes, write down Job 31.1 because it has something interesting to say about this. It's there that Job says, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? Job 31.1. Now, why would Job say something like that? Well, Job was... Checking the condition of his heart. Because at this point he had some serious tragedy happening in his life. And he's wondering why all these things were happening in his life and to him. And he says to himself, it can't be that it's something I've done or brought upon myself because of impure thoughts. And he reminds himself by saying, a long time ago, I made a covenant with God that I will not look lustfully unto another woman. I've not done that. Now we, especially as men, go, oh, come on, Job, you're a guy. You mean to tell me you've stayed pure when it comes to your thoughts about other women? I've read about your wife. I know about her. I mean, she's the one, if you recall, after they lost everything, you know, all his fortune, all the farm, most of the family, and she was the only one that survived. And after all that, Job's hanging on to his integrity. Her encouraging words to Job was, Job, why didn't you just curse God and die? Job could have said, Lord, why didn't you just take my wife, please, you know. But he didn't. But, but, but he could have even justified that in his mind, as sadly many couples do today. And he could have said, well, you know, my family's gone. My wife is no longer an encourager. She wants nothing to do with me. I need to find affection someplace else. What about that girl? Job didn't do that. He hung on to his marriage. He hung on to his, his marriage vows that he made. He didn't give up. He held on to his integrity. He chose to stay pure in the process. I made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? Job says, I'm going to think pure thoughts. Now, the Apostle Paul had something to say about this as well in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 2, when he tells us, guys, this is how you need to think. Every girl 
that's in the church there is your, is, that's younger than you in your fellowship, you need to see them as your sister. And every uh, woman in the fellowship that's older than you, you need to look at them as your mom. Now, when it comes to lust, ew, that's my sister. That's my mom, you know. See how that works. Pure thoughts. Listen, guys, if you don't destroy that impure thought life, then that impure thought life is going to destroy you. Because those thoughts become actions, and those actions become habits, and those habits become a character, and that character becomes a destiny. So what God has asked you to do is to reel in that thought life right now. Because you need to know that if you take that next step from from thought to action, you're never going to be satisfied. It won't be satisfying. And the enemy knows this. That's why pornography is so easily accessed on every computer, mobile device, tablet, smartphone there is. And and the devil feeds you the lie that, oh, this this will satisfy, this will satisfy. One more time, but it never does. There's been many marriages falling apart because it all started with one look at a pornographic website. And it doesn't satisfy. And you keep going back for more and more and you find yourself in the middle of a serious problem and the enemy knows this. If he can keep your mind focused there, then your mind is not going to be focused on God's Word and he knows that that thought will turn into an action and then a habit into a character and a destiny. See how important this is. This is not just a thought. It's who you are. It's whose will are you accomplishing. And whether or not you're walking according to the enemy's path or walking to, according to God's path. So the warnings are be careful, men. Moving on the next word, the next thought we're supposed to have. Paul says, whatever things are lovely. Lovely. You know, we're supposed to have lovely thoughts. Isn't lovely a lovely word? Just the word lovely. Such a lovely word. Now we assume that word implies that all of your thoughts are going to be just lovely and, and sweet and lovable, but that's actually not the type of word that we have here. It's the kind of word that comes from two Greek words that means towards affection. In other words, you're having a, a lovely thought. It means you are having a towards affection thought. It means you're moving towards somebody with a desire to help them become more than what they are. Well, how does that work? Well, just take note. You don't have to turn there. But Matthew chapter 7, first part of that, we're told not to judge in the first few verses. We're told that uh, if we then as hypocrites can, can get the plank out of our own eyes, then we'll be more able to get the speck out of somebody else's. Now, Jesus didn't say, don't take the speck out of the other person's eye. He said, first get the plank out of your own eye before you can get the speck on someone else's. So there's a moment in time that if I enjoy an honest relationship with someone else in the fellowship, a friend, a brother, sister to sister, brother to brother, that I can go to them and tell them, hey, brother, we need to talk a minute. Now, this isn't going to be lovely, syrupy, sweet. It's going to be serious and stern and out of love. And I, and I go to them, I say, I'm noticing something in your life. There's some changes that need to take place, some unbiblical practices that's going to hurt you. Now, if I could get the plank out of my eye and get at the speck, then we're both able to get at the specks in each other's eyes, and we're both able to encourage one another. We're both able to edify one another, taking the specks out. And nobody has to walk around with this four-by-four coming out of their, their head, you know, people poking out of their eye, dragging it around. Why? Because I, being lovely to you, helped you take it out. And you, being lovely to me, helped me to get the speck out of my own eye. See, we're moving towards somebody to help them become uh, better, more than what they are. 
Now, don't think in a moment that, that with all these lovely thoughts that, that might sound that you know, we don't need to sound stern or to the point. I mean, if someone you know, is, stands on your foot, Mr. Lovely's going to say, get off my foot, it hurts. And sometimes I think it has to be that way. You see a friend and they're going down a path that leads towards destruction in their marriage or destruction in their relationship with God. You're not going to say, well, excuse me, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to bother you, but, but if you want, I, I, I mean, you know, I, it's probably not a good idea. What, 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 you shouldn't, maybe you shouldn't be doing that, okay? Man up. <laughs> you need to stop. You're going the wrong way. Don't go down that path. Look at what the Word of God is telling you. You need to turn from this. It's still lovely because you're speaking the truth of love, but it's because you love them and you don't want to see them heading that way. Lovely's not wimpy. That's loving enough to warn them and want to help each other. Think on these things, Paul says. Next word, verse 8, Paul says two words. Whatever things of good report. I like that. It's a good report in comparison to a bad report. You know, the nightly news is nothing but bad reports. And they'll search the internet. They'll search the world to find that, that tragic story, that that, that horrible incident, whatever it is, and they'll even break through the, the, your program that you're watching. We interrupted the program to give you these bad news. Wouldn't it be great if one time they said, we interrupt this program to give you this good news. All over America, people were happy today. There's no serious accidents. You know, they went to work. They made it home in the evening. In fact, there were 6,000 weddings and there were 10,000 babies born today. The sky was blue for 80% of the country today. That's good news. That's a good report. I'd love to hear that. Of course, you get no viewers, you know, because people wouldn't want to see that. But, but that's the thought here. That's a good report. Thinking about good things and good things to say, good things to, to share. Not gossip, not slander, not always looking to give bad news to everyone we meet, not being critical all the time. Listen, let me tell you this. We have the good news. It's the gospel. And we need to be letting people know that they don't have to live this life empty and alone, that there's a God who loves them and gave himself for them. It's the good news. It's a good report. What else are we to be thinking? Verse 8, if there's any virtue, think on these things. Virtuous thoughts. The word virtue means behavior showing high moral standards. Really, Christian virtue, what, faith, hope, love, it's the gift of the Holy Spirit, you know, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are all virtuous characteristics. Paul says, think about these things. Think about treating each other with, with these Christian virtues. Treating them with love, with joy and peace and long-suffering towards one another. Kind and gentle. Finally, he says, think about those things that are praiseworthy. Think about those things that are praiseworthy. I'm sure you've all heard the saying, if you can't say something nice, what? That say nothing at all. Okay, that's not this word here. This word means if you can't find anything nice to say, then find something nice to say and say it. That's what it means. Now, you know, think, uh, you know, here's, here's my point. Think about one person that maybe really bugs you. And that thing about that person that bugs you. Now think of something praiseworthy about that person. Something in your life they say, you know what? Yeah, but man... Man, they really love the Lord. Or they really do this good. Or whatever it is. Now think of the same person. You got him, him or her picked out. Now think of telling that person uh, that one thing that is praiseworthy. Hey, it's really good to see you in church today. Okay, you got to be truthful. Okay, maybe it's not good to see him in church. 
Hey, that's a nice shirt you have on today. That's nice. Whatever you say, it's praiseworthy though. See what I mean? Think about the person that maybe bugs you and then think about that one good thing and look, look at them from that perspective. Where you say, you know, you know, I haven't talked to you in months because your voice really bothers me, but now I kind of miss it. You know, you, no way, that's not praiseworthy, is it? Um, here's the point. We're missing out many times on ministering because we can't stand someone's personal mannerisms. We need to not do that. We need to look past that and we need to look at the good in people. You know, Abraham Lincoln once said something very profound. Look for the bad in someone and you'll find it. It's true. If you look for the bad in me, come hang out with me in my house for a while. It won't take very long. You'll start to say, I thought you were different. I don't like this. I don't like that. Because here's why. If you focus on finding fault in anybody, you're going to find them because we all have them. We all make mistakes. Finally, Paul says, meditate on these things. Now, Paul is not saying, you know, you need to get a transcendental meditation on your navel and, and think, you know, just engage the mind. That's not what he's talking about. Biblical meditation is where you engage the mind. It's where you take a verse, you take a sentence, you take a promise, and you turn it over and over, and you emphasize the first word. And you think about that word, and you move to the second word. And you think about that word, and you're contemplating that word and the definition of that word and what that means. And, and then you, uh, you take the next word until you extract all the truth that you can. That's what meditating on it means. It means to think it over and over again, to chew on it. Kind of like what a cow does, you know, when, when they chew the cud. I've heard recently that a cow has four stomachs. And this may, to you, sound utterly gross, but... A cow, you know, a cow, you know, they'll put the cud, you know, in that first stomach and then the cow simply moistens it. Then it goes to the second and the third and the fourth. Then it comes back up again and he starts chewing it again. Then back down into the fourth stomach and then it breaks it all down. So this is kind of what's supposed to be happening with us. A wicked thought comes in. Sorry, I'm busy chewing that pure thought, that good report. And it tries to get into me, you know, maybe a different thought comes away. Nope, here it comes again. I'm bringing up that good thought again, that pure thought. I'm bringing it up, you know, I'm chewing on it. I'm chewing on a pure thought, a noble thought. I know it sounds gross, but it's the point. When you're thinking good thoughts, they lead to good actions. And they lead to good habits. They lead to a good character. And then ultimately, a good destiny. That's what the world needs. People who, who the world looks at and says, you know, there's, there's, there's someone who's truthful. There's someone who's honorable, just and pure. That's what the world needs to see. This brings us to our final point. Godly thoughts lead to godly people. Look at verse 9, and we'll close with this and enter into a time of communion. Verse 9, the things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul says, the things you've seen in me, these do. That's the key word in this verse, do. It means keep on practicing. It's not enough to meditate on these things, chew it around. You need to put them into action. It's not enough to learn these things. You need to to live what you've learned. And Paul is saying, hey, look at my example, because he made Christ the very center of his life. His godly thought, it teaches us to be godly people. And Paul is saying, if God could change me, then he can certainly change you. So let him work in you. And then he closes this with, and the God of peace will be with you. 
Not the God of anxiety. Not the God of worry. This is the God of peace. So as we put these things into practice, the God of peace, he's going to give us peace, but he's also going to change us to be more like Christ. I mean, isn't that all what we want anyway, to be more like Jesus? Finally, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but notice this or not, but Paul just gave us eight things to think about. Whatever things are true, noble, just, pure, lovely, of good report, of virtue, and praiseworthy. Now, these are eight things, but in reality, there's just one because each of these eight things represent a specific character trait of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is true. Jesus is noble. Jesus is right. Jesus is pure. Jesus is lovely. He's of good report always. Of virtue, definitely. And perhaps most importantly, Jesus is infinitely and eternally praiseworthy. So, the truth is, meditate on Jesus. Keep your thoughts on Jesus. Keep your focus on Jesus. Live for Jesus. And all these other things will not be a problem. It was A.W. Tozer who said, we are called to an everlasting preoccupation with God. Now, I can't think of any way better to do this than to close with communion this morning. It's taking everything we've been thinking about and talking about and bringing it all to the foot of the cross. Saying, Lord, change the way I think. Lord, change my heart. Lord, I want to be more like you. Let me say this, communion, communion is a time for believers to remember what Jesus accomplished on the cross for us. So if you're not a believer, if you don't know if your sin is forgiven, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you really can't celebrate what he's done for you. My point is this, if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I encourage you, make that commitment to him this morning so you can partake with communion with us uh, as, as a family together. I want to give you that opportunity before we enter into communion. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that we have to, Lord, to remember the cross and what you did for us upon the cross by going there, dying for our sin, rising again from the dead so that we can have our sin forgiven to be born again. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning that is yet to make that commitment to you, Lord, maybe they don't know you as their Lord and as their Savior. Father, I pray that they would make that commitment this morning. Well, I heard the bound their eyes or closes or anyone here this morning. You want to be born again. You want your sin forgiven. You want to make that commitment before we enter into this time of communion. You want to be born again. If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? This is just between you and the Lord saying, I, I want my sin forgiven. I want to be born again today. Just raise your hand so I can pray for you. Father, we thank you. As believers here, Lord, we can all partake of this time of remembering the Lord, your supper, Lord, the Lord's Supper. And Father, we pray, Lord, as we spend this time, Lord, that we would examine our hearts, Lord. Lord, that you would change our hearts, Lord. Lord, that you would change the way we think. Perhaps, Lord, we need it, Lord, desperately. Maybe we've gone down a path of destruction and we need to stop and turn around, Lord. We need to repent. Lord, thank you that we could come to the cross and find that grace and mercy and forgiveness. So bless this time, Lord, as we look to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.